Open your Bibles to Psalm 32. If you brought a, a copy of Scripture with you, Psalm 32. As we continue in our series, Your Questions, God's Answers. This is a theological series of sorts. We're dealing with many theological conundrums and theodicies throughout the summer. And we're going to deal with one this morning as well. One of the things that, I, that really disturbed me is the vanilla society in which we live in. Everything is so same. There's so much sameness. It's a very egalitarian society. Guys and gals are all everything same, same, same. And when we look at God and we look at his word and everything being the same, it becomes, we have a sort of a vanilla Christianity. And so with the subject we're going to be dealing with today, I'm going to try to ex uh, extract that out of you and, and inculcate you with truth from God's word to be able to see the subject of your question, God's answer, a little more clearly so that you might appreciate the great salvation that God has given to us. It is interesting the things that can come out of little kids' mouths from time to time. Would you agree? Many years ago, I was on my way home with my wife and family, our little family at the time. Our three-year-old was sitting between my wife and I, and our precocious seven-year-old was in the back. And uh, we were on our way home and I, from church, and I said, so, I said, so uh, honey, referring to my daughter in the back, I said, what, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And she goes, well, we learned about that guy that was full of demons that Jesus came on. And the three-year-old's eyes just instantly turned to saucers. I said, well, what did you learn? Well, this man was, he was living in tombs and he was cutting himself and he, he had a whole bunch of demons inside of him. And again, my three-year-old is going, and I said, well, what happened then? Jesus took all the demons out of it. She's literally explaining it like this. Took all the demons out of him and put them, in, put it, put them into a bunch of pigs. I said, whoa, then what happened? She goes, they went down a hill into the water and they all drowned. And again, my three-year-old's like. <laughs> and I said, so what's the application of this story? And the three-year-old goes, don't play near the water. <laughs> now, we can forgive a three-year-old for misunderstanding a Bible story, but some of you, despite your knowledge of the Bible, have a poor, or shall I say shallow, understanding of our subject today, which is sin. Its characteristics, its devastating consequences, effects. And because you have that, you, don't, you have a shallow or a vanilla view of it, you don't have the exhilarating joy of being forgiven of your sins. And the fact is some of you haven't been and still need to be forgiven but do you remember the story in Luke chapter 7 of the woman that came to Jesus? The woman who wept so profusely that her tears covered his feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed his feet. She anointed his feet with the ointment that she had brought in. You many of you remember that story. Why would she act like that? Because if you're forgiven much, you what? You love much. That's why. She grasped the depth of being forgiven. 
And she could not help but exude gratitude, which is what happens to all of us when we grasp the level, the depth that God has gone through his son to forgive us. So your questions, God's answer. Here's the question of the hour. Is all sin the same to God? If I had a dime for every time I've heard Christians make that statement, and you should know better. Is all sin the same to you? I'm going to attempt to correct the bad theology that says all sin is the same to God this morning, if at all possible, through the word of God and Psalm 32, David's own words. Hopefully the result will be deeper repentance, greater joy in what God has done for you, if indeed he's done it at all. The 32nd Psalm, David wrote it. We're told right at the get-go, but we're not given any historical backdrop like we are in Psalm 51. But most theologians, most Bible commentators, and I agree with them, believe this is directly connected to his sin with Bathsheba. If you don't know the story, you can go there another time. It's 2 Samuel 11. David inquires about this beautiful woman he sees from his palace. He brings her into the palace. He commits adultery. She gets pregnant. He tries to cover it up. It doesn't work. He actually kills her husband. So he becomes an adulterer and a murderer, and a full year or so goes by. Between that event, him taking her into his home, a baby being born, and Nathan the prophet coming and confronting David and saying, you are the guilty one, you're the man. What was going on in the heart and life of David during that year? The 32nd Psalm tells us exactly what was going on. Don't get ahead of us. The 52nd Psalm is the more familiar penitential psalm. It's the one where David is actually looking at his sin. When Nathan said, you're the man, David said, I have sinned. And the 51st Psalm is, the, is actually the, the unpacking of that confession of David, his repentance and confession. It's beautiful, it's powerful. 35 first-person personal pronouns in there. I, 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 I'm guilty, I'm guilty. It's very powerful. So the 51st Psalm is a look at his sin. So that's a psalm of confession. But the 32nd Psalm, the one we're looking at here, this is David looking back at his sin, its characteristics, its awful consequences. And thus, it's a psalm of contemplation. And that makes all the difference. More than anything else, it's a psalm of joy. The joy of being forgiven. There are no less than three selahs in this psalm. And whenever you read the Psalms and you come across the, the it's a pause, it's a, it's a pause in the song. It means to, it, it's, it's basically the, the equivalent of when I say, have you ever read that? That's what Selah means. And let's just get into it. You're going to look at these first two verses. We're going to get, I'm going to give you three looks at these first two verses. We'll put them up to you up there. We'll look at the whole Psalm, but this is where we're going to spend most of our time. He says, blessed, the Hebrew word means, oh, how very happy, is the, is the one whose transgression is, say it, forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David is writing 
from the place of happiness and joy of being forgiven. But he hasn't forgotten what it was like during that year of unconfessed sin where he covered it up because he who covers his sins will not prosper. That's what the scripture says. And some of you are there right now. You have hidden sins. You are living in sin. You are trying to bury that sin. And I'm telling you right now, if you're a true follower of God, you are dying from the inside out. And listen to the scripture. This is how David described himself. For when I kept silent, notice when I, he's looking back. He's not saying that's the way he is now. He's looking at that period of time between the adultery and the murder, the bringing of Bathsheba into his home, the baby being born, and Nathan coming and confronting him. When I kept silent, my bones, that's a reference to his entire body, wasted away through my groaning all day long. This isn't a 90-year-old. This is a 30-something. For night or day and night, your hand, that's God's hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. So if you go back to the dastardly deed that led to the murder and everything, it was the adultery with Bathsheba. David, if you remember, had to inquire about her. Other people got involved in this. Somebody went and got her. Somebody brought her to David. Can you imagine the scandal of that moment? Can you imagine the talk that was going on? Did you hear what happened? Apparently Bathsheba was up there in the palace. I guess she's pregnant. Yeah, and Uriah died. So I guess if you're a king, you get away with murder. David, if he could have heard that scuttlebutt, he would have said, I never got away with anything. I was miserable. And that's the place of sin. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Have you ever read that? That's what Proverbs 13 15 says. So back to our question. Is all sin the same to God? Well, you know the answer is going to be no. We disagree that all sin is the same to God because in short, because because they're not all the same. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 15, uh, Moses differentiates between unintentional and intentional sins. In fact, some of your Bibles translate the word intentional presumptuous. The Hebrew word means with a high hand, deliberate sin. And while there were sacrifices to be made for unintentional sins, those are the kind we make every day in thought and even in action, but they're not necessarily premeditated there wasn't a sacrifice for the premeditated sins. When someone says, I might be sinning, but I'll be forgiven, they're sinning with presumption. Even in the New Testament, Jesus, when he was being tried by Pilate, remember he said to Pilate, hey, the one who brought brought me to you is guilty of greater sin. That being either Judas or Caiaphas, Pilate almost being passive in the moment compared to the others. Mark Twain once said, and he was not a follower of God, Mark Twain said, most people worry about those things, those uh, things in the scriptures which they do not understand. But as for me, the things I worry about most are the things I do understand. So Twain, while not a follower of God, understood inherently the principle of accountability. 
To whom much is given, much shall be what? Jesus said, required. So while all sin, all sin is an abomination to God, all sin separates from God. No sin is so minuscule, it doesn't matter to God. Sin is sin in that sense. However, some sins are greater in grievance, in abomination, and in abhorrence to God, and no society like the vanilla society in which we are living right now has ever needed to hear that, like this one right here. And so some of them are of such abhorrence to God, they will resort, resort in greater judgment in the end. For example, in Matthew chapter 11, there's a fascinating denunciation that Jesus gives to one, two, three cities where his disciples went, preached the gospel, and they said no. They didn't want the gospel, they didn't want Jesus. So Jesus pronounces a judgment upon them, and he says, Woe, that's a word of judgment there, damnation. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if, watch this, this is fascinating. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented ago in sackcloth and ashes. So in the sovereignty of God, God not only knows what will happen, wait for it, he knows what would have happened. Now note the woe that these two cities faced. I tell you, watch it, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In other words, listen carefully, the level of knowledge one rejects is directly proportionate to the judgment they will receive. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not vanilla. Then, as if to sort of double down, I told you there were three towns, and he only mentioned Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now he mentions Capernaum. Of all, this was, his, this was like his hometown, and they rejected him. He said, and so he says to them, I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Have you ever read that? In, both, in all three examples, Jesus uses the term more, like more bearable, more tolerable. More, the word more is an adverb of comparison and indicating like greater extent. The same can be said of the word then, T-H-A-N, you see it up there. That's a, that's a comparative adverb, or adjective rather. So, which is, in this case, differentiates one set of people from another set of people. And here's the point. Jesus is clearly stating that while both groups are headed for judgment, one will suffer worse than the other. That's what I mean when I say not all sin is the same to God. Some are obviously worse than others and will result in greater judgment either in this life or in the next. So enough of this business that all sin is the same. And David is now going to take us deeper into your understanding of sin because the goal of this is not just to make you feel guilty. The goal of this is for you to see the different nuances, the characteristics 
of sin so that you can re- your repentance can go deeper and your joy can go higher. So back to the psalm, the 32nd psalm. David is writing, he's looking back. This, by the way, was Augustine, who every sect in Christendom claims, you know, claims Augustine. But Augustine, he, on his deathbed, had the entire psalm etched on the wall next to him so he could remember what a sinner he was and what a great Savior he had. Again, remember, David's writing from the place of being forgiven. So he uses three awful characteristics of sin. And then he's going to give us three awesome ways in which God removes them from those of us who really understand the essence of our rebellion. First, the three awful characteristics of sin. And I'm going to bring that same verse up, but I'm going to amplify those nuances. Blessed is the one who say it. Transgression, there's the first word, is forgiven. Whose say it, sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So there's these, there are other words used for sin in the Bible, but this is the composite. This basically covers all the essence of sin, okay? You have the word transgression, okay? That's, that's the word rebellion. We, it also could be translated trespass. And we all understand no trespassing signs, right? You see the no trespassing sign? It says, this far, no more. Don't cross the fence. Don't cross the property line. You do that. You break the law. You enter onto my property at your own risk, right? That's what the word transgression means. It's the acting out. Then there's the word sin. That's the word we're most familiar with. But if we just make it vanilla, that's the only thing. It it means to miss the mark. That's what it means. For all have sinned and come say it. Short of the glory of God. That's the idea. The idea is that it's an archery term. The idea is no matter how hard you try, no matter how many religious things you do, how many prayers you pray, how many sacraments you take, how many many religious thoughts that you have, how many prayers that you do, how many church services you attend, if you don't have the righteousness of God in you through Jesus Christ, you come short every time. And then there's the word, and this is the one I want to spend a little more time on, because it's not a word, it's in our English vocabulary, almost none of us ever use this word. We know it's in the Bible, and that's the word iniquity. Let's put it back up there so you can see it. It's there in that second verse, iniquity. The word iniquity is, the Hebrew word just means to be crooked or twisted. It carries the idea of something that's twisted or crooked on the inside. Now listen carefully. Iniquity is not the action of sin. It is the character behind the action. It's the heart of sin. It is the essence of evil. And many of you already know this. You just haven't put it together. Because I'm guessing many of you have memorized Isaiah 53, 6, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to say it. His own way. That's iniquity right there. So the Lord has laid on him. This is a prophetic statement about the sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf and mine. 
The Lord has laid on him, that's on Jesus, the what? Say it. The iniquity of us all. What is iniquity? It is you, it is me, from our hearts going astray. Iniquity is the essence of evil. Transgressions are the acts that carry out the evil. So John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you, right? But if you're going to kill the sin, you got to first kill it. You got to cut it off. You got to kill the snake. You got to cut the head off at its source. And that's in your heart. The iniquity within. By the way, if you look at verse 5, as we carry on in the passage, David uses all of those same words again. This isn't a vanilla text. He says, I acknowledged my, he's looking back, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Think about that. So David went deep in his confession, literally staring down the very character of his sin. And by the way, if you read the 51st Psalm, that is the actual confession. In the first two verses, all these three words are used. So basically, he's saying what we're saying when we understand the power and the depth of our sin. We're saying, Lord, I have contemplated sin in my heart. I've committed sin with my feet. Ultimately, my sin is against you. And all of my attempts to appease you through religious acts fall short of your glory. So with that, let's pick up the psalm because David has just said, looking back, I openly confessed the depth of my sin to God. Now I want you to see some really encouraging stuff beginning in verse 6. Notice what he says. Therefore, let everyone who is, say the word, godly. Godly people sin. What do you know? Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Again, he's looking back. He's sensing the exhilaration of his forgiveness. Now it's almost as if God himself steps in in the next verse. Look at it. He says in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then this. You should memorize this next verse. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be harnessed or controlled with a bit and bridle. Now, if you know anything about horses, you know exactly what the psalmist is saying here. You put a bit in their mouth and you control them, right? He's saying, don't be stubborn like that. We had a vacation Bible school a couple weeks ago and we sang, we sang Isaiah 53 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. <laughs> Some of you are going, I want to say it, but it sounds really silly right now. Yeah, they go, ba ba, do ba ba, you know. And they go right through, we go right through the verse. And, and then, and then in, in the middle of it, the kids go like this, they put their hands up, they go, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And it was my opportunity to say, this is what Jesus took upon himself for you. Your iniquity. What is iniquity? Well, we just, we've been talking about it. Let me tell you what I said to the kids. Iniquity is when your mom tells you to do something and you shake your head that you will, but in your heart you're going, uh-uh. And every one of you know what I'm talking about. You read something, somebody speaks the truth to you, you know it has the ring of truth, but in your heart, you're looking right at him and you're going, uh-uh. That is the essence of evil right there. And if you're going to kill the sin, you better kill it at its source, the iniquity within your very own heart. So to match those three awful characteristics of sin, we don't want to end up on that note. Amen? He gives three awesome realities of being forgiven. And with that, we're going to we throw up the same verse, but we amplify different words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is, say it. Forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. These three awesome realities. The problem is it's, you're so vanilla, some of you, it's not awesome to you. It's not exhilarating to you. You should be doing a dance. We just sang a couple of songs and it was like, hello everyone. You should, be, you should be jumping up and down over this, over the, the forgiveness of God. And this is the first one, the first awesome reality is you're forgiven. That's right there. In the, your transgression is forgiven. What a powerful word this is. The, word, the, the New Testament word is the word of theomy. It, it literally means to send away. This, they mean, and it's an allusion to the scapegoat. If you remember in the Old Testament, they would bring two goats to the priest. They'd slit the throat of one. That would be the blood sacrifice that would go on the altar. The other, the high priest would take his hands, he would press it upon the head of the goat, and he would confess the sins of the nation of Israel over that goat. And then they would send it away. You know, we say Jesus has taken away our sins. That's the idea. The goat would be sent away, and tradition says they basically would kick it over a cliff because they didn't want the goat coming back. So the idea was it has been sent away. And that's what happened. You realize in forgiveness, your sins have been sent away. It also means to hurl away or to throw away. So just the other day, I'm meeting with a couple, dear couple, my wife and I, we love them dearly. They've had some troubles within their marriage. Sin has gotten into their marriage. But God has has interacted with them. They've expressed forgiveness They've sought the Lord for forgiveness. They've forgiven one another. It's a beautiful thing. And now we're dealing with the business of what it means to be forgiven. And what does it mean when I forgive somebody? Well, it means we treat them the way God treats us when he forgives us. About that same time, we had had a dog in our house. We don't have a dog. I'd like one. My wife won't let me. That's a different subject. It may be a counseling matter. But uh, at any rate, uh, we're walking, I'm walking this dog around the backyard of the house, and the dog does what dogs do, which is the reason my wife, why my wife doesn't want a dog. And I'm not letting that thing stay there. So I take the plastic, and I grab what dogs do, 
and there's a wooded area behind her house. I didn't just drop it at the edge of that wooded area. I'm just telling you that right now. I hurled it that way. Why? So it would hit the neighbors. No, I'm kidding. It was a long ways from there. I'm kidding. I didn't want to see it, and I didn't want to smell it. And thank God that when he forgives you in Jesus Christ, he hurls your sin away. He doesn't see it. He doesn't smell it. All he sees is the righteousness of his son upon you. How awesome is that? And that's what it means to be forgiven. And that's what it means to forgive. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. But the Hebrew word forgiven here, literally, this word here literally means to lift off. means to lift off. And again, just the other day, I'm meeting with a man who just came to Christ a few weeks back, and he openly discussed how when he confessed his sin, when he repented of his sin, when he placed his faith in Jesus, he said, I just felt this weight come off of my shoulders. That's exactly what this is saying. That should make you leap for joy if you've been forgiven. The second word is you're covered. You saw it there, right? Your sin is covered. And when you cover something, you don't see it anymore. And this is an allusion to Leviticus 16. The high priest would go in with the sacrifice sprinkled on the mercy seat, and the sins of Israel would be covered for another year, then they'd have to do it all over again. Praise God in Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be done all over again. So that's the reason why the writer of Hebrews says, every priest stands daily and ministers repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Not entirely, anyway. But this man, after offering one sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God. Because Jesus' blood shed for us doesn't just cover our sins, it absorbed our sins. And this is the meaning of the New Testament word for covering. It's the word propitiation. It means that in his death, Jesus absorbed the very wrath of God, meted out against us if we don't know Jesus as our Savior. Right now, out west, there are several states that are on fire, literally on fire hundred and some degree temperatures, fires raging toward towns. In order to prevent the fires, these raging fires from engulfing whole properties, some of the firemen are going around and they're starting backfires. A backfire is a fire ahead of the raging fire that actually burns around the property, everything there, so that when the raging actual forest fire makes it to the property, it can't burn the property. It'll actually go around the property. Why? Because judgment's already come to the property. And when you place your faith in Jesus, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus took the condemnation. How wonderful is that? Your sins. You're covered. And finally, you're set free. The Lord counts no iniquity against you. You saw that? That, that to count against, that's a, that's a bookkeeping term. It means he doesn't impute it against you. It's the idea of the psalmist when he said, Lord, if you kept an account of 
iniquities, who would stand? It's a rhetorical question. None of us would, right? The next verse says, but there's forgiveness with you. Praise the Lord. If you come to Jesus, listen, if you come to Jesus, really come to him, God doesn't throw the book at you because he's already thrown it at his son who's already taken it upon himself. But if you don't accept Jesus, recognizing the depth of your sin and, the, and what the weight of what he, and what he absorbed for you, you will be punished for all eternity. David committed adultery and then murder to cover it up. Imagine his sense of relief and joy at the idea that his sins were forgiven. Horatio Spafford got it right in the great hymn when he said, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. If you see your sin as God does and you truly repent, God himself will produce a kind of joy that will literally make you leap for joy. I I thought to myself, where do we see this even today? And I thought of some of these verdicts of individuals who were guilty of high crimes. And have you ever seen those courtrooms where they're, where they're pronounced not guilty? Watch this for just a few moments. I therefore also find the defendant not guilty of felonious assault. Thank you. We're off the record. All right. Not guilty of... We've seen these things. But this is exactly as you and I should be when we recognize what we've been forgiven of. And do you think I'm exaggerating? Do you really? This is just preacher talk. I have purposely left out the last verse of this psalm. Look at it. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Look at that word rejoice. The Hebrew word means literally spin around. That's what it means. It means to spin for joy. Oh, righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's the problem with so many of us. We don't get what God has got for us. I was a thief. I was an adulterer. I was a drug addict. I was profane. But on September 6, 1982, my brother over the phone read the verse I quoted earlier, that every priest stands daily and ministers repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God. The veil came off, salvation came in, and I was leaping for joy. Have you ever experienced the true forgiveness of God? Have you ever contemplated the true depth of your sin and what it took for the Son of God to take it upon himself out of love for you? And if you would contemplate that, maybe today 
maybe today is the day of your salvation. And maybe you're a Christian, one that has allowed themselves to get far away from God. Like David, if you want to experience the happiness of forgiveness, you better recognize the corruptness of your sin. And when you do, and you come to God, it'll make you leap for joy. God, thank you so much for this time in your word. The answer to a question, we recognize, Lord, you hate all sin, big and small. There are some, however, that are more abominable in your sight. And Lord, as we examine ourselves, I pray that this group would examine themselves. Dear friend, if you have never seen your sin as God does, then you have never understood the cross like you should. Examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Test yourself. Does Christ live in you? And if he does, May we and may you and I both go as sinners, recognizing how wonderful you, Lord, are. How glorious and loving you are to take our sins away and to give us joy inexpressible and full of glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.